book of Genesis and uh, chapter number one. And I'm just going to read the uh, first uh, verse or two, and uh, then we will uh, open with a word of prayer. In the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. And then I will just interject this here. And thus begins the greatest story ever told. And the earth was out form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And uh, just tremendous description of creation in chapters 1 and 2. And then chapter 3, the fall. And you know, every story has tension and uh, it has a, an, un, an attempt to undermine uh, the desire of the protagonist. By the way, the protagonist of the story of the Bible is not man. The protagonist is God. He is the central character. It's all about our Lord. And his love for us. And we are uh, the supporting role, if you would, that he has given to us. But creation, really not lying the whole Bible in four points. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Or we could say this, coronation. When Jesus Christ is crowned as King of kings and Lord of lords. Tonight we look at the book of Genesis, but let's pray first. Father, help us as we, in the next little bit, look at uh, this uh, beginning overview of this first book of the Bible. And Lord, I pray that as each new layer is added in the coming Wednesday nights and months, that our hearts uh, would uh, be overwhelmed, fresh and new, at the wonder of the Word of God and uh, the wonder of this story and your self-revelation to us and uh, Lord, that uh, more than anything, we would come to love Jesus more and to know you better through him. I thank you for the Bible. I thank you that it is perfect. I thank you that we can place our eternal hope in it. And I thank you that uh, beyond the big picture of placing our eternal hope in it, we can place our trust in it for direction in the daily details of life. And so I pray that you'd help us to love it more, know it better. Uh, as we move through this series, in Jesus' name, amen. The grand view of God's word. Uh, let's just begin with a brief review of the six aspects of the doctrine of the Bible or bibliology that we've considered. The first is revelation. That is God's self-communication, the communication of God's uh, revelation of himself to us. And then inspiration. Uh, this is the channel or the means by which God gave his word to us, word for word, what he wanted us to know about himself. Canonization, those are the criteria that God placed in his word so that Old Testament saints and New Testament believers could know what was Bible and what wasn't. We didn't need to wait on a church council in the fourth century to determine that. So canonization. And then the doctrine or the teaching of preservation that is the careful concern that God providentially gave through succeeding generations for the copies and the manuscripts of his word to be available in their accurate and authoritative form for generations to generations so that you and I can, by virtue of the doctrine of preservation, hold this book in our hands and say, I have the word of God. Okay. 
And then interpretation, and that is rightly dividing the word of truth, cutting according to the pattern, interpreting it according to God's plan so that all the pieces fit together in a functional whole. And then we talked about illumination. That is the ministry of the Spirit of God in our lives to open our minds, to open our hearts, to shine light on, if you would, to illuminate our minds to the truth of God's Word. So, just to review there, now we're going to talk about the uh, sections of the Old Testament. So, get your pen ready, and also be glad that we can go back, you can go back and and, uh, look at some of these uh, aspects of this doctrine if you would like to online. Sections of the Old Testament. The first section is the Pentateuch, and we'll define that a little more specifically in just a moment. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The second section of the Old Testament we call the historical books, Joshua through Esther. And primarily it contains the history of the nation of Israel during the the conquest, during the days of the judges, and then during the monarchy, uh, the reign of the kings, okay? And then the poetical books, that's Job through the Song of Solomon. You can see Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are included in there as well. The fourth major section of the scripture is called the major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, Daniel, and Lamentations. The reason they're called major is not because they're more important than the minor prophets, but simply because they are bigger. Okay? Then we have the last section, the minor prophets. Those 12 final books of the Old Testament, Hosea through Malachi. So, sections of the Old Testament. Pentateuch, historical book, poetical books, major prophets... And the minor prophets. There will not be a test on this later, okay? This is just helping us get to know our Bible better. Uh, this is the threefold division of the Hebrew Old Testament by according to the Jews, okay? Uh, we, what we just looked at was according to more of an English or King James Version or English Version perspective. This is the threefold division according to the Jewish people, uh, and uh, they call it the Tanakh. Their Old Testament is the Tanakh. And I'll explain to you here in just a moment where we get this from, but you can see the three divisions. By the way, uh, I, don't you love this? I wish I could draw like this. Don't you wish you could draw like this on a whiteboard? All these cool colored markers and everything. They have a little picture here, a little caricature of Jesus down on the bottom, and, he's, and it's a quotation from Luke 24, 44. And remember, Jesus reminded those disciples on the road to Emmaus He opened their hearts and their understanding to all the things written in the Scripture in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Okay, And Jesus identified the three sections of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Tanakh. Now, the Psalms is a part of a bigger section called the Writings. So, the Torah, the Law of Moses, the Prophets... And the writings, but Psalms, because it's so big, was often representative of the whole section of the Hebrew Old Testament called the writings, okay? So that explains uh, the threefold division. So notice, you've got the the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, parallel to the Pentateuch, okay? Then you have the Nevi'im. This comes from the Hebrew word for the prophet, or a prophet, or prophecy, Now, they include Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and the kings because there were prophets like Samuel who were included in the history of those books, okay? And then you see Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the 12 minor prophets are all a part of the middle section, the Nevi'im, and then the Ketuvim are the writings, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, 
uh, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, and the Chronicles. And we'll talk more about the details of these when we get there. So where does the name Tanakh come from? T-N-K. Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. Tanakh. Tanakh. So that's, if you ever hear somebody talk about the Tanakh, you know they're talking about the Hebrew Old Testament. Okay? And so just a little bit of information there. Now, the word Pentateuch means a bookcase of five. That's where we get the name Pentateuch. Okay? It's not a disease that some Bible scholar has. All right? It means a bookcase of five, and it's a reference to the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, I want you to notice this. And one of the things I love to stress when I think about this and I, when I teach on it, preach on it, is every book has a purpose and they're all connected. They're all connected. Every book has a purpose. And it begins, if you would, with the scarlet thread of redemption that Jesus or that the Lord introduces in Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15. And that scarlet thread of redemption, if you would, inseparably connects every book of the Bible. And every book of the Bible has a unique purpose that no other book of the Bible fulfills. Okay, so Genesis is that wonderful book of the Old Testament, and we'll look at this in more detail in just a moment, but Genesis that gives us the foundation of all things and introduces us to the fathers of the nation of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Judah. Okay, so Genesis, the foundation of all things, and we'll flush this out in more detail in just a moment. Exodus is the formation of the nation of Israel. Remember, at the end of the book of Genesis... Jacob and his sons go into Egypt for what will end up being 430 years. They go in as a family and they come out 430 years later as a what? A nation. Seventy-some individuals over 430 years end up being two to three million after their sojourn in the bondage in Egypt. So the foundation in chapter number or in the book of Genesis, the foundation and the fathers, the book of Exodus gives us the record of the formation of the nation as they come out of the Egyptian bondage. Leviticus is a very technical Old Testament book. How many of you, that's your favorite book of the Bible to read in your daily devotions? Okay. Now, actually, there's some really amazing commentaries that have been written on the book of Leviticus that start in every passage in Leviticus and show how it's an Old Testament picture of Christ. And that's a wonderful tool, and it's a reality. The book of Leviticus, as you can see, Leviticus, relating to the Levitical priesthood, it really deals with the function of the nation of Israel. Some have even called the book of Leviticus the constitution of the nation of Israel. Because it deals with the ceremonial law, the criminal law, and the civil law, the worship aspect of the Levitical priesthood, Day in and day out laws, all of it there. So the book of Leviticus deals with the function of the nation of Israel. The book of Numbers gives the recount of the wilderness wandering, that 40-year wilderness wandering is a consequence for the children of Israel not believing God at Kadesh Barnea to occupy the land. Ten were bad, two were good. Okay, the, the report of the spies, ten were bad, two were good. And Numbers, early in the book of Numbers, a census number is taken that's around 600,000. At the end of the book of Numbers, at the end of the wilderness wandering, another census is taken that's in the 600,000s, but it's a lower number than the first number. Someone called the book of Numbers the longest funeral march in history. 
because it deals with the failures of the nation. You've seen how this all ties together as it relates to not just creation, but in particular the people of Israel. Genesis, the foundation and the fathers. Exodus, the formation. Leviticus, the function of the nation. Numbers, the failures of the nation. Deuteronomy, the future of the nation. The word Deuteronomy means second giving of the law. And it's just before Moses' death on the east side of the River Jordan. In the final months, he gives a series of five sermons. And it's the second giving of the law to that younger generation that survived the wilderness wondering. That first generation that disobeyed and did not believe God, they've died off. And so now Moses, in his final months, will preach a series of five messages that will re-give the law to that younger generation. And in there, he'll also include in the book of Deuteronomy a series of cursings and blessings that are guarantees for the future of this nation. If you follow God, you will experience his blessings in the future. If you disobey God, his curse will be upon you because of your wrong choices. Choose you. okay? Life and death set before them. One of the key verses in the book of Deuteronomy. By the way, what else is interesting is 19 times, I think it is, in the book of Deuteronomy, the word love is mentioned. That's an interesting, intriguing thought, isn't it? A lot of times we look at the law and we think law, 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 but there's a lot of love in the Old Testament as well. So the Pentateuch, the bookcase of five. Now we narrow our focus, Old Testament to the Pentateuch, and now Genesis, the book of beginnings. Basically, two main divisions in the book of Genesis. You can see this, chapters 1 to 11, the foundation of all things, chapters 12 to 50, beginning with Abraham, uh, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Joseph and Judah, the fathers of the nation of Israel, chapters 12 to 50. So it's very simple. When you hear, when you hear someone talk about the book of Genesis in a chapter, as you d- learn to to inscribe outlines and simple divisions like this in your mind, it'll help you to immediately establish context when you're having a discussion or conversation with somebody about the Old Testament. So the foundation of all things. Think about the first 11 chapters of Genesis in particular. Okay, there was... It still happens when some of these guys go to these liberal seminaries, they're taught that there's some fiction in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And that you don't have to interpret the first 11 chapters of Genesis literally. And you can still, it's only 11 chapters. You can still have faith in the rest of the Bible, even though there are myths in the first 11 chapters and representative. That's the kind of stuff that is taught in some colleges, universities, and seminaries, okay? Let me just tell you something. There's a really good Italian word for that. Baloney. Okay? The first 11 chapters of Genesis are the foundation of everything. You remove the reliability, the integrity, the historicity of those first 11 chapters and you undermine the whole book. Okay? Think about this. The creation of the universe. Where did this world come from? Genesis 1 through 11. Just got a few pictures here that I'll toss in for the sake of having a mental image as well. Genesis 1 through 11, the beginning of human history. Where did man come from? He didn't come from a one-celled amoeba that turned into a monkey that turned into a man. Okay, Genesis 1 through 11 tells us about the beginning of human history. And this is, I know we talk about it, I'm no kin to the monkey. The monkey's no kin to me. 
And the part of the song, I think, talks about the monkeys saying, I don't treat my fellow monkeys that way. I'm not related to those human beings. Look at how they act to each other. Okay. But there's significant theological uh, teaching at stake here. Think about this. Okay. As it relates to the beginning of human history, there are those that look at the fossil record and use it to prove evolution. And they say that there was a pre-Adamic race, a race of humans before Adam that lived on the earth and God judged them with a cataclysm. And that's how we can say all those fossils are millions and billions of years old. Where do fossils come from? Fossils are the leftover of creatures that did what? Died. They died. Okay. What is death the consequence of? Sin, all right? And all of a sudden, if you have people living before Adam so that you can have these, this sin and this death and these fossils, you, have an, you, you all of a sudden have major problems with the integrity of the Bible because the Bible says that Adam was the first man and that it was through Adam, Romans 5.12, that sin entered the world. Okay. So you see how important these first 11 chapters are. The institution of marriage in the family. Jesus appealed to Genesis chapter 2 and 3 in his own teaching on marriage. When divorce was prolific, there in, in uh, the first century when Jesus was teaching, he said, from the beginning it was not so. He that made them male and female said, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they shall be one flesh. And so Jesus appealed to the institution of marriage and its founding in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. But you can see off the first 11 chapters are myth. They don't have to be trusted historically. Then everything else is undermined in the rest of the Bible. The entrance of sin into the world. Uh, the history of redemption. Genesis chapter number 3 and verse number 15 comes from Genesis 1 through 11. The worldwide flood and the fossil record. Millions of dead things covered over by layers and layers of mud. Where did it come from? A worldwide flood. I got to tell you, the best answer to the fossil record is a worldwide flood. And the record of that is given in Genesis 1 through 11. The origin of all tongues, civilizations, and even skills comes from Genesis 1 through 11. You think about the Tower of Babel. You want to know where all these languages came from? God came down. The Bible tells us and stirred up the languages. And then as people isolated around their common language, they would move like God had told them to do in the first place, be fruitful and multiply and do what? Replenish the earth. And they hadn't done it. They said, let's unite at Babel and build this tower. And so God came down, confused their languages. Language groups would, in that scrambling, so to speak, identify each other as they would move to their own part of the earth. Physical characteristics within them would be isolated in that people group, hence different skin pigmentations, different appearances, and so on and so on. And it all goes back to Genesis 1 through 11. Okay. The establishment of human government. Genesis chapter number 9. Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. And then the foundation of the nation of Israel comes right in chapter number 11 as well. Through the descendants of Noah, through Shem, a man named Terah, and his son named Abraham. Eleven chapters that then transition us 
to the rest of the book of Genesis. Now, the book of Genesis is also the foundation of all generations. How many of you in your recent reading of the book of Genesis have noticed that this statement is used several times? These are the generations of. Have you noticed that before when you read? Do you know that that is a wonderful tool that God under inspiration put in his Bible to help us better outline and understand the book of Genesis? These are the generations. That word generations translates a Hebrew word, and I've transliterated it here for you. It's toledoth. That literally means this. This is what became of. So when you read that statement, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 4, it's the same way saying this. This is what became of the heavens and the earth. That God created... He put man in it to inhabit it, to enjoy the blessings of it, and then man sinned and messed it all up. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. By the way, let me just say this, and I've said this before, as much as the curse of sin has damaged, has marred God's creation, it's pretty amazing that it's still in the shape it's in after 6,000 years. What a wonderful blessing it is for us to enjoy it. But you can see how there are 10 of these, how they outline the book of Genesis, These are the generations. This is what became of the heavens and the earth. This is what became of Adam. These are the generations of Adam. Genesis 5.1. You remember how Genesis chapter number 5 goes? Adam lived so many years and begat sons and daughters. He had a son named such and such. And after he lived so many years, he had his son. And then he lived this many years and he died. Then on and on it goes all through Genesis chapter number 5. This is what became of Adam. Adam had sons. That son lived. That son had sons. But after that, he, had, he died. That cycle, if you would. And then the focus narrows from uh, Adam to Noah. Genesis chapter 6, verse number 9. These are the generations of Noah. And as you would expect, then we would come to chapter number 10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is what became of Noah. This is what became of the sons of Noah. And then notice what happens here. The focus begins to narrow. The further you move through the book of Genesis, the focus narrows. Remember that scarlet thread of redemption? Remember a family that's going to become a nation, and through that family that becomes a nation, all nations will be blessed, and God's seed of woman is eventually going to come. And the focus narrows. So we go from Noah to the sons of Noah to a particular son of Noah named Shem, who would have a son or a descendant named Tira, who would have three sons, and the focus would narrow from those three sons of Tira to one son named Avram. Abram. Okay. Notice this. Abraham would have two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. But the focus narrows as you move through. It's, uh, these are the generations of Ishmael. This is what happened to Ishmael. Okay, set him aside because our focus is on Isaac. And then Esau and Jacob. What's happening? These men are having two sons, three sons, and a focus on one son until we get to Jacob, and the focus will continue to narrow. And every one of these names, or in the case of the heavens and the earth, is introduced with this phrase, these are the generations of, this is what became of each of these individuals or these groups of individuals. And you can outline the book of Genesis in that way. Now, the fathers, just quickly move through these. And notice how, again, chronologically, you outline the book of Genesis, beginning with chapter number 12. 
We're told of Abraham in chapter 12 through chapter 25. And there is some overlap with his son. The focus narrowing. Okay, we mentioned Ishmael, but then he set aside and the focus narrows on Isaac. Isaac, and you see some overlap between, obviously, between uh, Abraham's and Isaac's life. And then Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob, and the focus narrows to Jacob, the son that God chooses through whom the seed line would come. And then chapters 37 to 50 focus on Joseph and Judah. Look, if you would, at chapter number 37, Genesis chapter number 37. Let me show you how this goes. Genesis chapter 37. Verse number one, and Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. Here's the final use of those ten times. These are the generations of who? Jacob. But then notice the immediate focus turns to who? Joseph. Why? Because Joseph would be the one that God would use to preserve the nation of Israel and the nation of Egypt through that famine. And also Judah, through whom the seed line would flow. If you look at chapter number 50, Genesis chapter number 50, actually it's chapter number 49, verse number 8. Judah, thou art he, this is Jacob giving his final blessing, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise, thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies, thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion, as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until what? Shiloh, peace, until peace come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Boy, you see all these hints there of the tribe of Judah, the mention of the lion. Isn't it interesting? Jesus is called the lion of the what? the tribe of Judah. He's the king, the one who will hold the scepter. And the scepter will not depart from, this lawgiver will not depart from his feet until Shiloh come. In other words, Judah's going to keep providing the king until Shiloh or until peace come, world peace. And unto him, talking about this future descendant of the tribe of Judah, shall the gathering of the people be. So the fathers. Now, Just a couple more uh, slides here that we'll consider. I want you to notice what I call the faith of the fathers. And these are just some of the highlights, the mountain peaks in the book of Genesis uh, that really lay the the groundwork, something, if you would, of the superstructure of the rest of the Bible. Notice, if you would, as you look at the book of Genesis, one of the central events after creation, of course, But as it relates to the nation of Israel and to the people of faith is the call of Abraham, Genesis chapter number 12. The calling out of Abraham, whose people, his descendants, will become the nation of Israel. Through them the Messiah would come. And uh, we'll notice this second point here. Another major aspect of the book of Genesis are the covenants. One covenant in particular, we call it the Abrahamic covenant. You can see... uh, uh, expansions of it in chapter 12, 15, and 17. Chapter 26 and 28 is God reiterating the covenant he made to Abraham to Isaac and then to Jacob. Why is that significant as it relates? This has a powerful application today. 
Here's why. Why is it significant that God reiterated his covenant to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, and not Ishmael? Remember, a lot of the Muslims are descendants of Ishmael who claim to be descendants of Abraham and therefore want to lay claim to God's promises to Abraham. But the position that we take on this when we would address that issue is that God reiterated the covenant as it related to the land and his promises to Abraham, not to Ishmael as Abraham's descendant, but to Isaac. The land belongs to the descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, not through Ishmael. Okay. And we go all the way back to the book of Genesis to establish that. Okay. God made a covenant with Abraham. There were several different aspects to this covenant, and we call this an unconditional covenant. Genesis chapter number 18, God was the sole participant as it relates to who would be responsible for keeping the covenant. In other words, regardless of what Abraham did, God was going to keep this covenant to him. Okay. There are several different aspects that really open our understanding to three other unconditional covenants in the Bible. God made his covenant to Abraham. He promised him in Genesis chapter 17 that out of his loins, kings would come. Looking forward to what's called the Davidic covenant that David and through David's seed, the Lord Jesus as the king of kings would come. God originally mentioned that to Abraham and his promises to Abraham. Also what we call the Palestinian covenant. God told Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, this land is yours. I like what a friend of mine said years ago to a Muslim on an airplane when the man found out he was a Christian preacher, he asked him, who does the land belong to? And my preacher friend wisely, in order to stop and keep an international incident from taking place, said, it belongs to God. The Muslim man liked that answer. The question is, who did God give it to? And he gave it to the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. So the palace, it's all right there in these early chapters. And then also, the promise of blessing for all the families of the earth. An internal change that would allow people to be transformed from the inside out, so to speak. We call it in the book of Jeremiah, the new covenant. And all of these have their root, if you would, in the book of Genesis. Another tremendous aspect of the book of Genesis is the conversion of Abraham. And think how important that is in the book of Romans. Abraham believed God, Genesis 15, and it was what? Counted him for righteousness. And the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans makes this case that that's how everybody gets saved. Okay? If you want to know how to get saved, just look at how Abraham got saved. That's how everybody gets saved. And that's established all the way back in the book of Genesis. The children of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, are all were introduced to this growing family through multiple generations and then the commute into Egypt. Now... Let me just close here with several purposes of the book of Genesis. Uh, as we think about the importance of it, and I'm sure it's already clear in your minds, but let's just do a little bit of wrap-up before we go to prayer. First of all, as we think about the book of Genesis, several important aspects to it is it illustrates, it teaches us, it introduces to us the sovereign power of God in creation. Okay, You read the description of the six days of creation, 
we still have trouble, if you would, wrapping our minds around the power that it took and the power that our God has. And it becomes foundational to our appreciation for the sovereign power of God and the rest of the Bible. Second Corinthians chapter number 4 and verse number 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see what Paul's doing? Paul's saying the same God in Genesis 1 that said, let there be light and there was light, and he called light out of darkness, is the same God that has authored salvation and transformation in the individual believer's life. And just to prove that, chapter number 5, the very next chapter of 2 Corinthians, in verse number 17, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new The sovereign creator of Genesis 1 is the sovereign creator of the new creature in 2 Corinthians 5. The sovereign power of God in creation. Another tremendous uh, bit of information here, and I noticed I hit the word of twice there. The start of of sin. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 12. Where did sin come from? Okay, it's, it's, uh, it's not the idea of some legalists that uh, people who don't agree with their standards, that's the sinner. God is the one who gives us information about where sin came from and he's the one that defines it. And we go all the way back to the book of Genesis. The salvation of man through woman's seed. All of these are a part of the purpose of the book of Genesis. The selection of a family to carry the seed. The family of Abraham. And then the scope of God's blessing. I thought about this in final moments of preparation this afternoon uh, before going home for a bit. You look at the book of Genesis. And you look at Genesis chapter number 1 and 2 and this perfect creation that God made. Put man in creation. Gave him instructions as a boundary of protection to help secure God's original intended blessings. You look at God's call to Abraham. Look, look at Genesis chapter number 12. Just about finished here. Look at Genesis chapter number 12 in verse number 1. And the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that... Bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be. You realize how many times you just read the word blessing? Do you know what that's a peek into? That's a peek into the heart of God. God as creator desires blessing for his creation. It's man's sin and man's own way and man's rebellion That messes it up. But notice the scope of God's blessing. And Genesis makes this clear. It's God's desire through Abraham and his descendants to bless all the families and all the nations of the earth. Because of that, you and I have what we have. Not just as Americans, but infinitely more as children of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have infinitely more and greater blessings. And it all goes back to the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. I think that's my last slide. Let's pray. Father, help us as we go to prayer now to lift up before you these requests. And we thank you that as we look at the book of Genesis, we see uh, answers to prayer. We see original patterns and first mentions of 
so many things that are vital to us today that we hold dear. It was in Genesis that we first read of men walking with God. It's in Genesis that we first read of men calling on the name of the Lord. It's in Genesis that we first read of people repenting and having a relationship restored with you. It's in Genesis that we first see some of the most beautiful pictures of forgiveness and trusting in the providential working of God and how to avoid bitterness as we think about Joseph. It's in the book of Genesis that we read the first promise of the gospel, the coming seed of woman that would be the Messiah who would provide salvation for us. Lord, I pray that these things would never get old to us and that we would have our hearts stirred at the integrity of the Bible. It all fits together. And in particular to tonight, the value of this first book of the Bible. And I pray these things in the name of the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.